I'll be reading Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Father, I ask for your help now as we undertake to move a step further in this magnificent book of Romans. If we're left to ourselves here, if I'm left to myself at this moment, I will not be able to speak the truth, let alone speak it with the power and the anointing and the transforming and converting effect of the Spirit. And these people will not be able to hear or understand or respond. So leave us not to ourselves, I pray. O God, draw near and let there be an anointing on this moment from you. And if there are any here who are outside Christ and do not trust him and love him and follow him, I pray that Christ would stand forth with such evidencing reality and glory and beauty and truth that they would be drawn to him. And would you build your people and strengthen your people and heal your people and comfort your people and empower your people and mobilize your people and release your people and unite your people and reconcile your people and purify your people in ways that I can't even dream because you are God and this is your word. I ask this in the name of Jesus our King, your Son, who loved us and gave himself for us. Amen. One of the things that makes the Bible an incomparable book is that it so unremittingly deals with big, great reality. God is the big reality. God is the great reality. The universe, whether you conceive of it as the macro universe of all the galaxies with that infinite space seemingly between all those stars, or whether you conceive of it as the micro universe with that strange thing called space between all the... Electrons and particles that make up things that seem so solid. Whichever way you think of the universe, it is as nothing compared to God. And the Bible 
relentlessly gets our focus on God and talks about how everything in the universe relates to God. And therefore, the Bible has about it an atmosphere that is remarkably serious, weighty. The word glory in Hebrew, kavod, weight. And one of the great problems in the American church is a, a sense of lightness, weightlessness. David Wells talks about God resting upon the church so lightly. Other things seem to rest heavily, but not God. But you come back to the Bible, and what a book it is. What a book it is. And here in Romans, as we come to verse 19 to 21, we're at one of those places where the issues being dealt with are so weighty that it makes one tremble to reflect on them and preach them. According to verse 18, which we looked at two weeks ago, the wrath of God is even now in history being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And we talked about how astoundingly relevant that was two weeks ago, especially politically, but also to every other human heart, because we all do that in one measure, suppress the truth so that we will not be called into question by it and can live our lives the way we want to live them and deal with the kind of God we create rather than the one who is. And now today, in these verses, 19 following, Paul answers an objection. And here's the objection that arises from verse 18. Somebody hears this statement that God is pouring out wrath upon those who suppress the truth. And they say, wait a minute. What about people who've never heard the truth? Are you saying, you did say, Piper, that Paul said that verse 18 related to all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. And you argued that that's not a little group of people, but everybody. And it's because they suppress truth, but not everybody has it. Therefore, they have a legitimate excuse to protest against the wrath of God that you say is coming against them. That's the objection he's answering in these verses 19 and following. Now, just so you'll know, this is not the only place where Paul wrestles with this issue. Look at chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Same question. What about differing exposures to revealed truth? Will God 
treat everybody identically? Will he hold one group accountable for truth that another had and they didn't have? How does this work? That's a big issue, Paul. You can't just talk about the wrath of God coming against everybody in the world because they suppress the truth when they don't all have the same truth. So, what is Paul's response to this? He responds in four logical steps. We could either go forward from the bottom premise up to the conclusion, or we could go backwards from the conclusion following his argument step by step down to the bottom. And as I thought about which way should I go in this sermon, I said, well, let's do it both ways. Let's start at the top and work our way down and then conclude with a kind of summary fashion, starting at the bottom and working our way up. And maybe the argument then, coming at it from both sides, will be clear and we'll be able to take it home and repeat it. So let's start with the conclusion and then work back to the premises and follow this argument. Okay, so we'll call the conclusion step number four, and then we'll go to three, two, one, and then we'll go the other way. Here's the conclusion. The conclusion is found at the end of verse 20. So that they are without excuse. So his final answer to the objection is, no, I don't buy it. Nobody will have an excuse to legitimately protest against God's wrath coming against them because they suppress the truth. That's the conclusion of his argument. Nobody is without excuse. Now the question is, okay, if that's your conclusion, that's a big conclusion. That everybody in the world is experiencing verse 18 in one way or another because they're suppressing the truth. And his conclusion is they don't have any objection to raise. There's no excuse that can be raised here. Okay, you say that, defend it. So we drop down to step number three in the argument. And it's found at the end of verse 21. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks. So, conclusion, they're without excuse. Nobody in the world honors God the way they should. Nobody in the world thanks God, that is, is aware of the full dimension of their dependence and carries that dependence on God through in a life of gratitude. Nobody does that the way a redeemed soul would, a righteous soul would. So, all men are guilty and without excuse. They don't do these two fundamental things, glorify God as God, and thank him as they ought. Well, that assumes something, doesn't it? So we need another step in this argument. That assumes in their failure to glorify him as God and thank him that they know that 
he's there, that he's God, that he's a beneficent God, that he's a powerful God, and that they owe him glory and that they owe him gratitude. But do they know that? And so step number two in the argument between four and three, or at the bottom of four and three, is found three places. He states this one three times. It's found at the beginning of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, and the beginning of verse 21. Let me read them to you. Verse 19a, right at the beginning. That which is known about God is evident within them or among them. Probably better translation. Evident to them. Verse 20 at the beginning. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. There it is again. Third statement of it, the beginning of verse 21. For even though they knew God. So there you have it in three forms. First, what can be known about God is evident to them. Second, his divine attributes, namely power and deity, is clearly seen. Third, they know God. So here are the, here are the, the three concluding steps of the argument. Since they know God, that he has eternal power, that he is deity, that he's creator, that therefore they are totally dependent on him as part of the creation. That's step two. Therefore, step three, they are, they ought to, and they don't, glorify him with that or thank him. And conclusion, when they suppress that truth, they are without excuse. Now, there's a bottom level to this argument. And it's probably the most important when you consider everything else. And it's found in two places. At the end of verse 19, and then the explanation of it in the middle of verse 20. At the end of verse 19, it says... For God made it evident to them. You see, the first half of the verse says, what can be known is evident or manifest to them. And then strangely, interestingly, powerfully, he says, because God made it evident to them. How did he do it? And that's the explanation in the middle of verse 20 in the little phrase, being understood through what has been made. You hear the passive voice implying an actor behind that. Somebody made something. And that's what verse 19 at the end is talking about. You see, the knowledge of God doesn't just get stumbled upon so that we know him coincidentally and God says, Oh, look, they found out about me. 
Verse 19 at the end says, this is no accident. Nobody stumbles onto God. It says, God made it manifest to them. God did something. He acted like a potter acts or a sculptor acts or a poet acts, only out of nothing. And in acting, he writes his signature broad across creation. You know what the, the word is behind the little phrase in the middle of verse 20? What has been made? There's one Greek word behind that, and you all know the word. You all know this Greek word. And I'll give it to you in Greek, and then you're going to give it to me in English, which are almost the same. All right? So it's a test. The, the Greek word is poema. What's the English word? Poem. It's from we get poem. It's used one other time in the New Testament. We are his workmanship. Poema. Created in Christ Jesus. What's the point of that word there? What can be known about God is manifest to them in the poema. What's the point of using that word? If the wind blows on a beach and the sand is dry, it just might make an L. And if you saw an L in the sand, you might say, probably just the wind. But if you found a poem in the sand, nobody would say, it's just a wind. Unless you could conceive of a wind ruler who could turn the wind into a pencil. In other words, the point of the word poema is design. Purpose, intelligent intentionality. That's what Paul means to grasp with this word poema. God has written God across the galaxies and across the molecules with a poema so that anybody who looks reads a poema and either sees God or suppresses God. Those are the only two options. Because Paul says, everybody sees it. Everybody sees it. Now, two weeks ago, I said this is an incredibly relevant book. Politically, today it is an incredibly relevant book. Scientifically. Naturalistic evolution is a given today in our culture it is a given you read National Geographic or Ranger Rick or your standard curriculum in high school it's not a theory it's just a given this is the way it is 
However, when you look at what's happening in the scientific world today, it's really remarkable. It's starting to feel to a lot of sciences that the Darwinian conception of the emergence of the human cell, for example, or any other cell for that matter, is incomprehensibly inadequate in its explanatory power. To, to conceive of matter, wherever that came from, and chance, and then a long, long, long time, however long it takes to get this, that's becoming really incomprehensible to a lot of scientists, the better they get to know the subatomic this and the molecular this. So, for example, leading the way in the newest kinds of assault on the philosophical prejudice called naturalistic evolution, not scientific conclusion, is Philip Johnson with his book Darwin on Trial and defeating Darwinism through opening minds. Then following him comes Michael Behe, the biochemist from Lehigh University who wrote The Black Box, who talks about irreducible complexity in the human cell or other cells. Meaning by that, that when you look microscopically at what it takes for a cell to be and to run and to perform what it performs, there are so many parts to it and they interrelate in so many complex ways such that if any one of them is missing, the whole thing shuts down, meaning that it could never have emerged incrementally because no increment will work like the cell works. He wrote a whole book to say that sentence. <laughs> well, you have what he calls irreducible complexity, which he says contemporary efforts by Darwinian, materialistic, naturalistic, evolutionary means can't explain it. It just doesn't scientifically hold. Let me read you one of the most interesting paragraphs about the little flagellum of the bacterium. This is a little, this is a little motor that lets the little, little bacterium get around. The flagellum is a whip-like rotary motor that enables a bacterium to navigate through its environment. The flagellum includes an acid-powered rotary engine a stator, o-rings, bushings, and a drive shaft. The intricate machinery of this molecular motor requires approximately 50 proteins. Yet, the absence of any one of these proteins results in the complete loss of motor function. The irreducible complexity of such a biochemical system cannot be explained by the Darwinian mechanism nor indeed by any naturalistic mechanism proposed to date. And after Behe comes Michael Dempsey, Dembski, 
who has just written and will be published this year by Cambridge University Press, The Design Inference is the name of his book, and he just wrote a preliminary article which I was reading, and in it he quotes some of the foremost Darwinian devotees like Richard Dawkins and Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA, And what you need to hear from these men who are philosophically committed, just like I am to the authority of the Bible, they are philosophically committed to naturalistic evolution such that these sentences come out of their mouths. Dawkins says, Biology is the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. And then Crick, Francis Crick says, this is a logical inference from that, biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see has not been designed but rather evolved. We must work at this. This is hard. And the more they penetrate to the reality of this thing called life, the more hard it becomes to hold fast to the prejudices of naturalism that implicitly rule God out as designer, which I say is simply a parable and an outworking of Romans 1.18. They suppress the truth. They read the poema off of the molecule or the cell or the galaxies or the solar system or the trees or the seasons or the eyeball. They read the poema of the handiwork of God and they constantly remind themselves this cannot be a poema. It cannot be a poema. Otherwise, I would stand face to face before my maker and have to glorify him as God and give him thanks for my whole life and everything in it and live a life of humble gratitude for which he gets all the glory, not me. And the human heart is radically in rebellion against that life orientation until the Holy Spirit moves. And that's what we should pray. And God is doing it. God is doing it. All you who are scientists, be great scientists. Dembski's point in his new book is that the argument from intelligent design does not get in the way of science, but advances science. Science is up against a brick wall with chaos. But if one comes at the the cell with the conception that design is possible, there is possible, and he doesn't even argue for God, that design is possible, new possibilities are opened for science to think. And expand their understanding instead of feeling like, oh God, he's the great science crusher. You can't think scientifically if there's a designer 
What a crazy thought to think that you can't understand design if there's a designer. Let me draw this to a close by doing what I said I was going to do, namely work from the bottom up by way of summary. You see, I I don't want to close this message by saying, those scientists better get their act together. Or, those benighted aboriginal tribes need to wake up to the poema because they're going to be held accountable for not thanking God and glorifying Him. Both of those are true. But that gets up uh, us off the hook again, right? The Bible means to come down to Bethlehem week after week and say, okay, if God is this way, if we know this much, if we're without excuse, what's that have to do with Kenny Stokes, urban Minneapolis and Bethlehem Baptist Church? And so let's, let's come to our conclusion by going backward, or maybe this is forward, in the argument from the bottom up. Step one in Paul's argument is... At the end of verse 19, God acted. God made it evident to them. God wrote a poema. God did some designing. God has communicated in Philip's neighborhood. God did something there. Every single human being there is created by God and designed by God so that, Kenny, you'll never meet a human being there who has not been created by God, you too being a creation of God. And that is an awesome thought, that a creation of God called Kenny Stokes will mobilize creations of God called Bethlehem Baptist Church to meet lost creations of God in Philip's neighborhood. And what a meeting that can be. It's only when we think small, mechanistic, so... I don't know what the word is here. Not just naturalistic mechanisms, but sociological mechanisms. And everything is working by just kind of human, boxed-in mechanisms. And when you think that way, oh, how futile life can seem. And how dead-end street every drug problem is, and every abuse problem, every homeless problem. But if you think, God made them, they're a poem. There's a meaning. There's a communication flowing to Kenny and from Kenny and to us and from us. There is something of God to read here. Then it gets big. Starts to take your breath away what we're about in the city. That's step one. Step two is all the men and all the women and all the young people in the urban center of Minneapolis know God. That's what verse 21 at the beginning says, though they knew God. Kenny, you'll never meet a person there who doesn't know God. Yes, he is suppressed. Yes, in the suppression is distorted. Yes, it can even become so darkened, as we'll see next week, in idolatry, that those very people will say there is no such being as a poem writer. Yes, yes, they can say that all they want. And you can either believe them, or you can believe the Bible. 
I vote Bible. Nobody in this world has won my confidence like the authors of the Bible have won my confidence over years and years of reflection, meditation, and study. So if somebody says to me, I don't think there's a God and I don't think I'm a creature of God and I'm no poem, I will simply say, that's a mistake. Because God says, He made you and He wrote you and you got a meaning and I'm here to help you discover it. The third step in the argument is that everybody suppresses the truth and therefore doesn't glorify God or, or thank Him. Nobody's glorifying God in this city the way they should. Nobody thanks God the way they should. And therefore, Kenny, if you love the glory of God, which you do, and if we love the glory of God, our hearts ought to ache that God's not glorified in this city the way He should be. I mean, this text is so plain. This verse 20 is so plain. 21. God means for the human race to glorify Him as God. Isn't that an interesting phrase? They did not glorify Him as God. There are ways they do glorify Him. Just being is a glory to God. But he means to be glorified consciously as a living, personal God by them. And how? By mainly thanking him and thanking him and then turning that thanks into the future tense with trust and obedience. That's what he wants to happen. And therefore, Kenny, you and I and this church, oh, may we devote ourselves with all the energy that he mightily inspires within us to labor to open the eyes of those who become blinded to what they see. And the last step in the argument is, therefore, they are without excuse. They are without excuse. Now, if step three in the argument should make us jealous for the glory of God, step four in the argument should make us compassionate for lost sinners. Because what we're saying at this stage is not only has the wrath of God already begun to be poured out. That's what we see in our city. Wrath. Addictions are wrath. Homelessness is wrath. Sicknesses are wrath. Death is wrath. The futilities and corruptions and decays and sins and bondages of the world are the echoes of the judgment of God already landing upon the world. And what we're hearing in this last step is nobody has an excuse. And therefore everybody will eventually come under the full outpouring of the wrath of God in hell unless... We get to them, or somebody gets to them, with verses 16 and 17, which is where we're going to end. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation from wrath for everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek and the poor, and the rich, and the educated, and the red, and the yellow, and the black, and the white. Kenny, that's an urban strategy. 
needs to be tweaked for every setting. But this is massively significant in how we do our ministry because drugs, murder, domestic abuse, alcohol, homelessness, poverty, unemployment. These are not the main problem in the city. The main deep problem in the city is that people suppress the truth, don't glorify God, live thankless lives, are without excuse, and are hell-bound. That's the problem in Minneapolis at the bottom. And we, due to nothing in ourselves, know the remedy. And the escape, namely, there is a righteousness that God demands from us, verse 17, which He will reveal and give to us freely for the trusting, like a little child, which anybody can do, trusting. And God will say, all right. You may have my righteousness and my wrath will be averted from you and I will begin to heal you and ultimately I will bring you home safe to glory. That's an urban strategy if there ever was one. That's the problem we're dealing with in this city mainly. And when that righteousness lands, it lands with a healing and a transforming and a humbling, beautifying, liberating power on families and individuals like nothing else. Let's pray. Lord, oh Lord, oh God, we want to be the instruments of the power of God in the gospel for the sake of the city. Lord, we want our lives to count for the city, for the dishonor of your name in the city, and for the excuseless lostness in the city. And so come, ready our congregation to be responsive to Kenny's mobilizing and Kenny's leadership and Kenny's dreaming and make us a partnering people in ways we've never dreamed of in this city. People groups that you are bringing to this city to reach that nobody ever dreamed would be the case. And powers and mobilizing evangelism and all kinds of practical ministries that demonstrate the love of Christ. Oh God, let this be a great new day for us as a church, I pray. And one last thing before we go, just to bring it right to your own heart. It may be that sitting here listening to me talk about the failure to glorify God as God and to thank Him, you're feeling, well, I don't. I don't. And so I just want to invite you, if that has a, a point to it, that is, if there's a focus or a place in your life that's clogging your glorifying God and you're thanking Him, 
I'll be here at the front and other elders, prayer teams will be here. And we just love to pray with you if you want to linger for a few minutes after the service. Let's stand for benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the suburbs and peace in the city and peace in the country. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.